0: This is writer and game designer, Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Hite. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pell Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Top-down versus
1: bottom-up design. Number one's Black Agents. Beaupre the Giant. And
0: the Tomb of Mayshow.
1: You've perfected the dosey dough. You've mastered the mashed potato. You know your dance crew is the hottest around, but now it's time to prove it.
0: Breakdancing Meeples is a real time dexterity game of, you guessed it, Breakdancing Meeples, designed by Ben Moy and published by our
1: friends at Atlas Games.
0: To play, roll your meeple dance crew as fast as you can over and
1: over. Lock in useful rolls and re-roll the rest to complete dance routines and score points.
0: After four one-minute dance rounds, the crew with the most crowd appeal wins the trophy.
1: Breakdancing Meeple comes in a metal tin that's nearly as indestructible as your high school boombox.
0: It plays two to four people ages six and up in five minutes. Find
1: break at your friendly local game store or at atlas-games.com backslash breakdancing.
0: Because when beats bump, meeple's gotta dance.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, I think, Robin, I think the painters have been in because... The room is halfway painted from the top down. Well, hopefully uh, they're not going to come in during game time, but it does remind me of a question asked by Patreon backer, beloved Patreon backer, Bob Greider. He says, I've gotten pretty good over time at doing top-down design and making rulings to fit the narrative. I still struggle with making bottom-up designs where the seams aren't visible, however. Any tips on how to make more mechanically clever designs that feel organic and grounded in the world? And the top-down design is one where you start from the thing you want to do in the game. And you start with a story, basically. And then uh, the what hits the table is what you thought of based on that story. Bottom-up design is something that you mechanically generate from the rules, and then you have to fit it into the story. So your classic bottom-up design, of course, is the wandering monster table, and that's where you get, we're being attacked uh, by an angel and six bugbears, because those are traditionally associated with, uh, with each other and have compatible alignments. Oh, no, they're just next to each other on the table, and the GM rolled weird. And so that is the question, is how you how you get from a, uh, a mechanically generated uh, result to a narratively seamless uh, game experience. Robin, uh, do you use, do you even use random things anymore or do you just simply gaze at the game and your genius pours out into it and then there's uh, angels and bugbears that make sense?
0: I can't think of the last time I've done anything randomly because my whole gig mostly is in emulating fiction in which uh, if things are being done randomly, it's being done poorly. Uh, it's just a bunch of arbitrary nonsense. And even, uh, you know, my crunchiest design, which would be Rune, was like, how do I design a rotating GM game for that emulates a first-person uh, sword hacking video game? Uh, and so even that was not, a, there is not randomness in that so much as a lot of uh, build system stuff with maybe some, there may be some random stuff in there to sort of uh, get your brain going. But and I think even I think top down and bottom up are sort of confusing as well. So I think what I'm gonna start saying through the rest of this segment is uh, organic versus mechanical. Okay. Because uh, one of them is about where the uh, the mechanical is. Here's this rule structure. And what happens happens as a result of the rule structure. So that's your angel and six bugbears, uh, to which you can retroactively apply narrative. You know, well, uh, this angel is redeeming the bugbears, and uh, they're uh, used to be uh, kind of bad dudes, but now they're uh, they've seen the light, and uh, they uh, think that you're the bad guys because the actual foes, the uh, uh, sinister land developers have uh, have tricked them into fighting you. And so that's one way to build an interesting narrative out of a mechanical uh, conceit. And then the other uh, example is, you mentioned Civilian with a Knife in the Yellow King role-playing game, in which uh, how do you uh, generate a character or a foe that represents someone who's just going to attack one character, given the very specific different abstract combat system in uh, the QuickShock? version that appears in Yellow King role playing game. And so that's about, well, how does this work in the narrative? So what organic thing do I want to have happen? And therefore, what mechanical solutions do I need to achieve that aim? And so, so, so the problem we're being presented with is making the organic decisions seem organic. I I think my question is, I hope this isn't yet another premise rejection, but it's yep. not how I think. I don't stop to go, well, which direction am I designing in, but rather uh, what is my design goal and how do I achieve that as economically as possible? So I f- think there might be a false dichotomy at work here. What do you think?
1: I, th- I think if you play more games that depend on mechanics because they uh, either because they're basically a series of big fights, like most F20 games, or because uh, everything has to uh, remain very balanced for the game to function at all, like a number of uh, mediocre games. You have a situation in which, for example, and I will give an example out of uh, my own experiences, not even just doing random encounters, but let's say you are doing a dungeon. And back in the day, doing a dungeon was super easy at first or or maybe first through fifth level, uh, because most monsters were roughly challenging, and if they weren't, you could pile them up. So even at, you know, third or fourth level, a bunch of second level monsters was still kind of scary. And then you'd get up, and now you can't challenge anyone with a bunch of second level monsters, but you're thinking, but I've established that carrion crawlers are in all dungeons. And if I put them in, it's just going to be, uh it's going to waste valuable fighting time. And how do I introduce a deadlier carrion crawler that happens to be sixth level (laughs) with that making sense of story and so you have to think well does the necromancer like feed his carrion crawlers you know some sort of revivifying goo uh what what's going on that uh justifies me having suddenly badass carrion crawlers again when the characters level up and i'm doing this right now i've got a bunch of eighth level uh 13th Age characters going through basically a dungeon. Don't tell them in the under city of Tactula in India, and there's all the dungeon creatures are are like kind of scanty levels. You know your ot yugs and your oozes and whatnot. And so I'm just using the r- remarkably simple uh, monster toughening systems in Thirteenth Age to just make them what I call you know Eka ot yugs. You know very bad ot yugs. One better ot One louder. And so they're fighting them, and I think that if they're remembering, these are like fourth-level monsters, what's Ken trying to pull? But I think they're still having fun because, again, if they haven't been through enough uh, sewers to know that not youngs are normally weak, and so I'm justifying it that way. But you still have to create the justification of why is this fight happening, and it's not even a rules-mechanical Uh, question sometimes it's a story mechanical question or at the table mechanical question this fight is happening because another fight would be unsatisfying or would waste time or we all know what would happen and so why would we even play it but it's also unsatisfying to say you go through a room there's a bunch of carrion crawlers you kill them and now you're in the next room uh so you're trying to uh not necessarily in a uh in the in the brute wandering monster sense but you're still trying to justify game structure story structure Something else, uh, table, uh, time narratively in, in play. And again, that's the difference. I think that's where sort of the rubber hits the road for the vast majority of RPGs because they're not pure theater of the mind. It's not pure anything goes. What do you do next? We're telling a story together. There are dice. There is a assumed setting. There is questions of of mechanical relevance because you've got character sheets and those numbers have to interact with the world in some fashion and so it's at that point that you're starting to make decisions based on other things than purely what would happen if this were a a good book or a good tv show or a good you know uh improv narrative
0: right right? and and the people who are uh playing uh, games which are wildly popular that Uh, feature the mechanics and our mechanics forward don't necessarily uh, I think then uh, care that much about why the angel and the bugbears are together that you know you if you just come up with something that that works everybody kind of nods and goes well we know what the conceits are right we know that there's a wandering monster table and in fact probably you like that loopiness uh, and uh, a lot of the OSR movement is about bringing back the original sort of uh, whimsy and strangeness and non-narrative uh, sense of uh, of F20. So I think rather than trying to worry about reconciling those two things, you just ad- identify what it is that you're doing and uh, embrace that. And either one of those things can be a a path to a uh, satisfying, uh, situation in play, but by definition, the thing that you're choosing to favor is going to take a front seat, uh, and the thing that you're choosing to push into the background is going to be in the background. So, so the question I would ask is, you know, you could come up with a much more elaborate sort of life path style wandering monster table where you you roll once on it, and you if you and and then it says and then roll again on the creatures that hang out with angels table. And uh, there are certainly people who would love that uh, level of complexity as a DM and would love to buy a $20 book of wandering monster tables uh, that guarantees that you will never be confronted with a weird result Uh, or an app that does that uh, probably today, although you'd only pay $1.99 for an app. So I think people would still want the $20 book.
1: But but that's all right, Robin. The app would cost two orders of magnitude
0: more to create, so. Exactly. So it would all come out in the end. So I I think it's all about rather than organic versus inorganic, that it's uh, a question of what play elements you're favoring and want to have in in play and uh, acknowledging that you are never going to have an absolute balance of all of those uh, things that, uh, I, I would say beware, even in a crunchy system, if you are designing something with just the aesthetic of the math or the uh, structure that you're building in mind, that you still want to at least go back and forth and and have uh, to preview a segment we're going to cover in the future to have table sense, to be able to predict what's going to happen at the table when you're complicated space combat system or your purchasing stuff in the magic item shop rules uh, come into play. But uh, I I think it's more a matter of how uh, the players think and what they enjoy interacting with and whether they uh, want to see themselves in a story or whether they want to find the holes in your magic item shop tables and ruthlessly exploit them.
1: Yeah, and, and this, of course, comes to the question sort of of adversarial, you know, versus cooperative play and I think that this podcast comes down pretty hard on the side of cooperative play versus adversarial, but again, if your players are even if you're agreeing you're getting together to tell a story, you may be saying, well we're getting together to tell a story, but if we never call you on your nonsense, the story becomes uh slack or pointless or whatever, and there may still be some degree of, you know, as as you say, you know, you, you sort of come up with explanations, but every table is different and every player is different. So what works for one player who's like, yeah, yeah, I just want to get to the stabbing angels, bugbears, got it. But another player may be either super invested in immersion or in-game realism or something like that, world building, or they may just be a jerk who wants to poke fun. Or they may just be in a, you know, the, the, the madcap cut up player who enjoys pointing out ironic distance and the player, other players have not murdered them. Then you have to make sure that whatever degree of thinking about the game you do is enough for the, for your table, because some tables are just going to say, yeah, yeah, we get it. Flail snails, let's go. Whereas other characters are going to say, but wouldn't their maces break off the stalks? I mean, what's, how does that even work? That's crazy talk. And then you have to figure out if you want to explain it. Fortunately, in most f20 games you can say it was a necromancer. it says so right on the <laughs> on the door you came in he uses necromancy to do it. that's literally what it's for.
0: He put up a plaque to explain everything
1: you need to know. Yes. if you bought his book in the gift shop, it would tell you how how I strengthened that monster beyond all rational belief
0: right and uh sort of. Mechanical versus organic in story uh, is one dichotomy, and emulation versus simulation is, is another dichotomy where you may break down on different sides in the set of the same rule set, but you will uh, be either trying to simulate the way things work in fiction or saying, well, this is a reality with a physics engine, and it just happens to have dragons, and here's how their fireball works. And so I think that's just one of many uh, dichotomies in which you're never going to be entirely pure. And really, I think, I guess to square the circle, to make the mechanical organic is to, uh, have still a level of playing by ear. And when it hits the table, uh, see whether it works, uh, whether uh, people uh, dig it and why they dig it and why they don't. And you may be surprised that, you know, that your players who all like something, uh, that they mostly want to deal with the mechanics. Here's this one issue, but except when it comes to tidal waves, <laughs> we yeah. when when it comes to tidal waves, we want them to be narrative or whatever. So
1: <laughs> or or like gunshot injuries, which is where yeah. all players want it to be narrative, and nobody wants it to be mechanical.
0: Yes, or rather, they want the uh, <laughs> their opponents to suffer uh, mechanical yes. gunshot injuries, and they want to have narrative, uh, narrative gunshot ones. injuries.
1: Yep, exactly. So
0: it's still it, even. So I guess what I'm ultimately saying is that even the uh, mechanical level, in fact, involves a lot of playing it by ear and seeing how people react and being surprised by playtest feedback. That uh, uh, Because often when someone has uh, an objection to a particular uh, rule structure in playtest feedback, it's often coming from someone's very, very specific uh, theoretical framework that has no relation whatsoever to my design goals or even the, the way that I think about Uh, gaming and when you get a whole bunch of people saying that they're right and when you get one person saying that they're weird
1: right exactly and that's why you have to have uh some understanding what your players want and what you're trying to accomplish with the game and don't try to do everything you've read about in all the books all the time because you'll drive yourself crazy just you know if you've got a group that says oh yeah necromancer that's why or oh yeah angels well-known saps they can be talked into stuff by bugbears i get it you're done
0: uh well i guess if you're done it's time to move to a new segment you're done
1: They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in
0: Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrin Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project
1: yet. From gumshoe master Robin D. Laws.
0: The Yellow King role-playing
1: game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to
0: drive your terrified players through. Belle Epoque Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked monde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The Wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis
1: on the eerie, shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War.
0: Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat.
1: This is Normal Now, our ordinary present day
0: or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe, where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as
1: fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions.
0: Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found-object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris.
1: And the Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality.
0: Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before, or it gets you, if cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrain Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or the Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at PellGrainPress.com slash shop. It's time once more to Ask Ken Robin, and this time around, esteemed Patreon backer Alan Wilkins says, I hereby invoke my Patreon powers to request your insights on creating a mashup of *Knights Black Agents and The Prisoner. Former spies, mind-bending conspiracies, quaint European villages with dark secrets. It seems a natural combination. And I would say it's natural except for one thing, which is that *Knights Black Agents is about being on the run. And The Prisoner is about not being able to run. It's, it's about, about being, being trapped. Yep. Uh, so, can do you keep the nice black agent's uh, structure and the uh, reality espionage of The Prisoner? Or uh, what do you do? Well, I think
1: some of it is... This is really going to come down to what will your group put up with? Because <laughs> as you have noted... In uh, Gumshoe before, and then I have noted following along with you, by and large, players hate being jailed. They really hate it. They don't like it. They don't want to like it. They and don't they just want not
0: like it in Gumshoe. They dislike it in every genre. Every, every aspect. Every game.
1: And so, since the whole point of The Prisoner is you are jailed and you're going to be caught all the time.
0: It's as if it's called The Prisoner or something.
1: Right. Yes. It's almost as though it's about being The Prisoner. You would really have to start with the question, will my players legitimately want to play The Prisoner as opposed to watch The Prisoner? If they don't want to watch The Prisoner, then you should change your name and move out of state because they're terrible, terrible people. Prisoner's the greatest show ever made or greatest spy show ever made. But it can be a frustrating, by design, a place to inhabit because the goal of the show is to demonstrate that these pressures literally drive people insane and break them. And that Playing that is going to be less fun, and in a group setting, it's even harder to play them, because if you're all number six, if you're all Patrick McGowan being uh, smart and ironic and the target of being broken then the stories don't work because the whole point of Patrick McGowan is he doesn't know who to trust. He doesn't know who's a warder and who's a fellow prisoner. And so it can't be, Oh, I trust him. He's got the PC light over his head, or I trust her. She helped me out in the last three adventures. We're probably on the same team that breaks the central conceit of the prisoner. So it's already hard to do if you're not playing a solo game. I would say if you're doing a nice black agents, the prisoner thing, one fun thing to do might be to put the players In the role of the warders, that they work for Edom or for some other vampire hunting group, CIA's Find Forever program, and they've caught a vampire, and they have to keep him uh, alive and operating, but in an area where they can control him, measure his abilities, and eventually turn him to serve whatever political cause they, they support.
0: So th- the whole so, island is just an enrichment program for the vampire.
1: Right, it's an enrichment program but it's also a study program and that some of the people are going to be dosed up with uh with bee venom or whatever it is vampires are allergic to or they're going to be, you know, uh, enjoying silver salts. You know, obviously there's there's not a lot of shade on this island. It's not, you know, uh, got porticos, a lot of places or it does but they intend to channel the the vampire and that could be fun to have the players design uh the village or the island and and work out how they're going to keep the vampire and then it really is just they have to uh thwart the vampire's attempt to escape or they have to figure out how to get information out of the vampire's behavior and they figure it out and you play it out like you'd play a prisoner episode and that could be good fun the trouble of course is that inverts the moral lesson of the prisoner which is that jails are bad and jailers are bad and individual heroism is good and so <laughs> you run into you know using the the form while uh jettisoning the substance i think that if you do want to try a group of spies who are you know grabbed and put in a, a secret village uh and all their magical gear is taken away so preparedness is kind of you know a, a borked ability because you can only have things that you can already have scrounged somewhere in the village just be prepared for it not to last uh 13 episodes or 17 episodes be prepared for uh the chimes of big ben or one of the other escape stories to actually work the players get out and you're like well well done everybody you can't do the thing where you know they they get out and they and they go to london and it turns out it was all a, a fake london and and they're recaptured Because they're going to be very mad about that. And it's it's going to, I think even in the best players, it will introduce a spirit of mulishness that is not a spirit that you want at the table where everyone is supposed to be giving and sharing ideas and uh, riffing off of each other. And I think a sense of why am I even bothering to do this? You're just going to have number two come out at the end and say, ha, ha. You didn't escape for reasons.
0: The, the, the word agency might come up at some yeah, point. Yeah,
1: exactly. A lot. Um, and, and it works on TV. It doesn't work at the table, I think. Uh, there is a GURPS the Prisoner book, which I guess does as good a job of gamifying the prisoner as anything ever has. But even it sort of dances away from the question, how do you keep people interested after, say, the third adventure? of this
0: right so some things to uh to think about first of all preparedness can be replaced with scrounging which is a gumshoe ability in some uh, games you can just literally uh do that as long as you can justify having found something in the environment you can do that Mm -hmm. i think you might want to look at uh knight's black agent's solo ops as a way to do that and i think as you suggest uh, having that be an opening adventure and then they escape and then the knight's black agent's thriller part starts where you are running across Europe to continue your escape uh, because now you know that, that you don't want to be back in that place again. Yes. You, you
1: started as number six and then you became danger man instead of the other way around.
0: Yes. And so, uh, and you know, occasionally that, you know, there'll be like a, a car chase through the streets of Paris and mini coopers. And then a big white balloon will be one of the things chasing you. So you occasionally see all the weird imagery from this place that you still don't understand and you still don't understand what their relationship is to the vampires because in that opening scenario you don't run into anything that tells you that you're dealing with a vampire Uh, so there's some sort of counterforce even and you don't know what you have to do with it and uh, so you are trying to run toward the mystery of what was the island all about, who set that up, why were you on it and what does it have to do with uh, with the vampires?
1: Yeah, I, I think that if you present, I mean, the breaking out of the village makes an excellent, you know, scenario zero or opening gun and even if, you know, you break out of the village and in the course of breaking out of the village you've discovered that vampires are somehow involved in the village either as test subjects or as uh, warders that gives you a a, a, a frisson of was that run by the vampires, was that run by the anti-vampire people. But if they were keeping me gassed and prisonered and, uh, uh, and taunted by attractive women in Mary's want skirts, is that actually something that I can get behind aren't they as bad as these vampires? And then as you say, it becomes a putting the pieces together a thriller operation. Uh, Another thing you can do with uh, the village is just, you know, uh, make it the place that they were building the Jason Bournes that, that psychological pressure program, that they use to crack all the other spies is how they make them into the, into the, uh, Treadstone agents. And you as the Jason Bourne slash Patrick McGowan are the unbreakable one who, who got out or whose programming backfired and, and, and got you out of the program. And so the, the villages is where all of the other super spy, uh, hardcore wet work badasses come from. And you can recognize them because they all have the little penny farthing badge, and that's, you know, just the emblem of the, of the program where they all, you know, say be seeing you, uh, when they see you in a crowd. And then you're like, Oh my God, we've got one of the, one of the village people, not the village people. The, they, those are del- beloved disco entertainers. They have nothing to do with international espionage that we know of. Um, and, and so one of the, uh, one of the warders or one of the other, uh, agents created by the village can be out there and maybe part of the weird stilted etiquette. Of the village, the sort of strange Edwardian flavor of it is because, again, it's set up by vampires who are just doing what they thought was contemporary, but they don't really understand how the modern world works, and so they're saying, "Yeah, I think everything should be a multicolored sun umbrella, and we should wear boaters, and there should be a weird butler." Yeah, this is totally natural. Yeah, no one will ever suspect it's this is up to weird. That
0: yep. was only eighty years ago. That's exactly. The it's all strong. And, you know, you show up at your safe house in Bucharest and there's uh, someone to tell you, oh, well, now uh, now you're number three. And what does that mean? <laughs> uh, I guess essentially it's about making the action of the prisoner uh, more mobile and uh, you never really fully get caught again. Or you might get briefly caught again, but you don't wind up on the island. You wind up in a maze in uh, T- Tbilisi and then you get out of the maze in Tbilisi. And right. And the notion
1: is that the village is actually uh, a world girdling organization, not one facility. And so they they use these uh, prisoner techniques on you wherever you happen to be, assuming that you let your guard down for one minute or attract enough attention to have the real cops arrest you. And then they turn you over to the the, the warders uh, because they have some kind of mysterious pull behind the scenes.
0: And you, the the final reveal could be that, in fact, it is being run by the vampires to test who the uh, new person is that they're going to recruit uh, into their ranks, right? They just don't turn anybody into a vampire. They want uh, somebody super uh, useful and uh, mentally resilient and that uh, essentially it's all a giant... Uh, cross-continental escape room in which you're being tested to to, to see if you are uh, worthy of uh, being given a a set of fangs
1: right sanguination is what we want sanguination
0: uh well on that note i think uh, we can escape the white balloon uh and uh, uh it'll be distracted by this exciting commercial and we can get to the next segment The Best of Aspageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All
1: issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled...
0: and six guns role playing game western. How do you say "slap leather varmint" in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Astvageln on drive through. Keep this podcast heading seamlessly your way by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Lionel P. Hatebreak, Kevin J. Maroney, Lewis
0: R. Evans, Noel Warford, and Andrew Cowie. The busts
1: on plinths, the rows of archival papyri, the ridiculous arguments about uh, things you read on Wikipedia, welcome us to the History Hut. And here in the History Hut, speaking of things that I just read in Wikipedia, Robin has been investigating the mysterious past of Beaupre the Giant. And Beaupre the Giant, Robin, well, I mean, I, I know what Wikipedia knows. Tell me more. Tell me all.
0: Right. So I discovered uh, Beaupre the Giant in mid-session a few weeks ago when I uh, discovered that I needed a Montreal ghost uh, who was not the ghost that they were looking for, but a ghost that the characters could talk to and get some important information on ghosts and how they work. And so just fire up haunts in Montreal, and I happened to land on the story of Edward uh, Beaupre. And the ghost part of it actually is... Uh, sort of almost uh, kind of an afterthought to what is an interesting uh, life and then a uh, sadly unfortunate things that happened after uh, his uh, death. So he was born in 1881 in Saskatchewan, in Willow Bunch, and he was uh, a Métis. He worked on a ranch uh, with his father and godfather, and uh, up until the uh, age of nine, he Seemed uh, just like uh, any other uh, boy out there in the uh, prairies uh, uh, riding horses and stuff. But then he got a growth spurt. And that growth spurt, in fact, lasted his entire short life. Uh, Supposedly, he was still growing, uh, even when he died at age 23. And he reached the height of eight feet, uh, three inches. And it sounds like he was quite an impressive person. He spoke five languages. He spoke French, English, English. Machif, uh, which is the combined uh, language, not a creole, but a mixed language of the the Métis uh, and Cree and Sioux. But uh, by the time he's seventeen, he's too big to ride a horse. So what does he do? He becomes a uh, a strong man. And by the way, just by point of comparison, the tallest uh, person ever recorded was a uh, Robert Wadlow, uh, who got to eight feet eleven, uh, which is pretty uh, amazing to think about. At any rate. He uh, goes into this, the circus trade. He becomes a performer, and he had a strong man act where he bent bars, uh, he lift, ho- lifted horses on his shoulders, and he was also uh, a wrestler. He did have a, uh, a match with the legendary uh, Quebecois wrestler Louis Cyr, who was another uh, strongman-slash-wrestler uh, who uh, was responsible for many, many feats of strength and was a giant superstar in his day. And Louis Sear won that match close to instantaneously. So, yeah, tall but
1: not strong.
0: To, well, he was strong enough to, uh, you know, bend bars and lift horses. Just not a good enough fighter to defeat the best fighter <laughs> in, in right. the world at that time. <laughs> yeah. So he's 23 years old when he signs a, a contract with Barnum and Bailey's, and uh, this is going to be the big time. He's going to uh, they're going to start the tour in St. Louis and go all across. Uh, America. This is what uh, most Canadian performers, you know, when they really break it big, they go to the States. Uh, But uh, sadly, now most people who are uh, this tall do die young, but Edward Beaupre doesn't die due to a heart attack or anything related to uh, his height. He dies of tuberculosis, which until its eradication was a deadly disease that killed a lot of people. And this is where things start to get uh, unfortunate in that his body is embalmed and Barnum and Bailey says, we're not paying for that. And so the question becomes, what happens to his body? And the answer, let's send it back to his family in Willow Bunch, Saskatchewan, where he is the eldest of 20 siblings. Uh, Perhaps his mother and father and siblings would like to uh, bury uh, Beaupre the Giant this occurs to no one. Uh, so, yeah. instead... Well, they've,
1: they've, they've already they've got, got it involved, involved I and,
0: guess. Uh, Circus people are involved. So, they figure, well, uh, we've embalmed it. Let's put it on display. Let's make an exhibit of the uh, body of uh, uh, poor old uh, Beaupre. And uh, he's first displayed in uh, St. Louis and then in uh, Montreal. And if I had researched Beaupre the Giant ahead of time... This bit of information would have played much more of a role in the, in the uh, narrative. Uh, and uh, I might have to have a sequel or something in order to fit all of this in. So he winds up in a wax museum in Montreal, in the Eden Musée. And like wax museums of the period, it is a uh, combination of the uh, sort of uh, official and, uh, and noble. So there's like a, a hall of monarchs. And other historical figures. Uh, but of course, there is a Chamber of Horrors. And uh, this also includes uh, an array of other preserved anatomical uh, curiosities, uh, which was uh, considered uh, perfectly normal uh, entertainment for people of all ages at that time. And then there's a gruesome Chamber of Horrors. And so uh, every murder of the period, Jack the Ripper, or Crippen is represented uh, there. Uh, there's uh, an opium den display that was uh, considered edifying entertainment—a wax opium den—and most famously, there was a Devil's Kitchen display, which had a, a Satan and his imps uh, roasting a uh, man on a spit. So very wholesome all around, and
1: was probably the guy who bogarted the last donut. <laughs>
0: Uh, probably so. I don't know what he did to of- offend the uh, the magic beaver. Um but at any rate, uh this drew so many people that the uh the good proctors of uh of Montreal, no doubt the rich Angle establishment, uh noticed that this was unseemly. So they shut this exhibition down. So Ken, at this point do you think that they sent the remains of Edward Beaupray back to his family in uh Willow Bunch, Saskatchewan?
1: That that's I mean if they didn't, Robin, they're violating the ironclad code of wax museum operation. Uh, I, I, I refused countenance the thought that they would not have done that.
0: Well, it was turned over to responsible parties in the uh, University of uh, Montreal Medical School. And, of course, they turned it. Oh, no, they didn't. They mummified Edward Beaucray <laughs> and put him on display in a glass cabinet. And, of course, this is a... Example of a much wider phenomenon of uh, uh, museums uh, treating the uh, remains of uh, different indigenous people, uh, sometimes uh, older uh, bodies that have been uh, found in archaeological digs. In this case, just somebody everybody knew (laughs) and liked. But he was tall and nobody paid the embalming bill, so they just kept him. And the family doesn't even know what has happened to... Uh, beaupre until 1967. And so, can in 1967, do you think that the University of Montreal turns the remains of Edward Beaupre over immediately to his family and apologizes with shame-faced uh, recognition of what has been happening?
1: Well, Robin, they're a powerful academic institution that believes they're better than everybody else. So, of course, they must have uh, They did not. No, they refused of course to not. return
0: the body. And it wasn't finally... Given back to the family until 1990, uh, the remains were cremated uh, because there was a fear that the grave robbers would just uh, d- dig him up again. Uh, uh, those grave robbers might have been from a rival university, perhaps. Given given the standards right, on yes. display
1: here, Montreal State across town, those jerks.
0: Right. <laughs> so uh, the Edem Musée is now part of the Gothic Monument National Complex. And this is a a house with multiple theaters uh, in it in Montreal. And uh, one particular uh, sort of smaller studio space in the basement, the Studio Hydro Quebec, as it is currently uh, named, and will remain named until some other corporation decides to uh, take over the sponsorship and rename it after themselves. So apparently this area is is haunted. And some people in the theater like to say that it is the ghost of Sarah Bernhardt, friend of the show, or at least a recent topic segment on the show. But right. if you stop to think about that, it's like, well, would Sarah Bernhardt choose to haunt uh, some dumb backwater theater in a place, provincial place, where they don't even speak French right? I think I think not.
1: I don't think so. No. <laughs> yeah, there's not, there's many not the divine historical Sarah.
0: theaters in Paris for her, her to haunt should she deign to do that. And also the ghost seems to be angry and it's not clear why Sarah Bernhardt would be angry and banging pipes and uh, creating a sense of uh, terrible uh, unease and, uh, and, uh, and dread uh, in the studio Hydro-Quebec. So it makes much more sense if you think about who would be mad at this space. Clearly it would have to be Edward Beaupre. And so he is thought to be the ghost uh, that inhabits this place. And in my telling of it, he turned out to be, after a suitably uh, high uh, role, a a friendly ghost, at least to the investigators. He did offer to wrestle one of them and uh, break his back, but that was in a a spirit of friendly competition. and uh, Absolutely. And when confronted with the fact that the investigator did not want this, he made clear that it was just strictly an offer. It wasn't uh, anything that uh, he was insisting on. It was just available choice if that if anyone wanted that.
1: Right. If if you wanted to be respected by the ghost of Edward Beaupre, that's what you choose. If you don't, then don't. That's fine. Uh,
0: so definitely somehow I'm going to have to uh, have a scene where the entire Eden Musée comes back as a ghost, a, a ghostly establishment and uh, and get some horrors of, of, the, of the wax museum in there.
1: Now, outside the context of your game, let me postulate that the ghost in the Aden Musee is either the ghost of the devil child skeleton that was also exhibited there. And that would be classically angry first. He's angry because he's a devil child. They're known to anger people. Also exhibited without proper uh, moral or medical authority, probably. And just a kid, just getting up to hijinks and skylarks like a kid does. So I think there, there's a strong possibility that's the ghost. Other possibility, it's a tulpa. And I will tell you why. Because the Quebec folk rock band Beau Dommage or Beau Dommage. I don't know how they say Number it. two. Number two. Beau Dommage wrote a song called Le Géant Beaupré in 1975, which uh, informed everyone about Le Géant and that he was a ghost. So my theory is that Beau activated or created or engendered, uh, the Tulpa ghost of Beaupre. And so the Tulpa ghost is angry and rattling around and causing trouble because he's a Tulpa ghost and Tulpas are, are, are known to be, uh, you know, emotional and, and, you know, sort of id driven. And so the, possibility, and I just want to put this out there, is that that could also be your ghost. So, it, or it could be two ghosts. It could be the devil ghost and the tulpa ghost.
0: Right. I think if you've got the choice of a scenario where there's the ghost of a, a giant and the ghost of a devil baby, do you just go with one? Are, are we pikers here? No, of course. You're, no, we're not. There's, I'm sure that there's there's multiple. There's all sorts of ghosts associated with the that uh, horrible old wax museum
1: and and then there's also of course the rawdon shack the actual shack where uh thomas Nulty murdered his three sisters and younger brother so there's a murder spirit there a specter a shade an anio perhaps even it could even be the ghost of one of the murder victims that's tied to that shack and they're just running around screaming a a quebecois uh the ring if you will with the with the long it's hair. It's almost
0: like someone was trying to create a, a, a collection of ghosts. It's almost
1: as though that's what the Eden Musée was up to. And, and again, the, it was closed down in 1940, so it's a, it fits right into the Trail of Cthulhu era. If you are doing Trail in uh, the 1930s and you're in Montreal, go visit the Eden Musée. And maybe that's where our buddy uh, Bonus stashed Rantigoth when he had to remove it from uh Britain or he just stashed one of the other monsters and it's just there in the back of the uh Eden Musee. Who can say? And
0: you can and you could go gamble at Harry Ship's place.
1: Right. You can have a whole a whole raft of adventures there. Uh being chased around by vengeful ghosts, this would be before they were tulpas, so all you'd have is ghosts, but maybe they're not yes. even ghosts yet. Maybe it's yeah, just so it's,
0: if it's before québécois folk rock there's it's straight up ghosts, no tulpas
1: straight up ghosts yeah and and so there's uh there, there's any number of possibilities i mean it, and also this is something, and I don't know to what extent it happens with wax museums, but I know that it happens with sort of oddity museums. there is a traffic. In these oddities. And obviously we saw it with the body of Beaupre that it goes from St. Louis to Montreal somehow. That's not a natural connection. Someone in Montreal is like, we've got a, a wax museum. We've got about nine feet of space. St. Louis is looking to get rid of their giant. Let's make a deal. Someone brokered that there is somewhere. Uh, a a a person or perhaps a group of people from say 3 to 6 numbers of people Well he,
0: he was famous in Quebec so it would yeah, have right. been a natural market for that. Right
1: natural market. Well again that's what you do. If you are brokering giant bodies or devil babies or murder shacks or whatever you try and go where the market is. But again what a great setup for uh and a sort of a carnivaly uh, or Carnival Connected, a horror game of some sort. that you're, you're the people who are trafficking in these unseemly or uh, exotic relics, right?
0: And it gives you a horror in the wax museum story that is not the standard one. Right. Because the usual one is they're made out of bodies. And this one is all about a ghost collector who is, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the wax bodies are part of the horror, but they're not uh, the main thing. So, it's a nice sort of a loop to throw people.
1: Also, Mexican mummies in the, in the Eden Museum, I see perhaps at the last minute, but I saw them and they're there. Right. Mexican mummies.
0: Well, before we get sucked into the Eden Museum, uh, which I think would be even worse than being trapped on the island, it's time for us to uh, head through this commercial to our ultimate segment of this episode.
1: What are swords without sorceries? Nada! What are sorceries without swords? Bopkis! Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivy, Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivy, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries.
0: Explore crumbling civilizations separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome
1: dad. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired
0: the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign.
1: Order and find bonus downloads and resources at SwordsAndSorceries.com. That's
0: Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivy. The Swing of the Pickaxe the pith of the piff helmet tell us that we're once more uh, in the archaeology hut. And this archaeology hut, uh, when we look inside it, well, gee, it looks like uh, there's a Nordic alien and a gray alien studying uh, the survey maps inside uh, because this is also the elliptini hut, because uh, mysterious patron backer Wayne Rossi uh, invites you, Ken, to expound on a random item from spooky archaeology, which is a book that you discussed on your most recent Ken's uh, bookshelf. The author of that book, remind me, is...
1: Jeb Card. Jeb Card. He's also the co-host of uh, In Research Of, a podcast that discusses the television show In Search Of, episode by episode. So Uh, that's good fun.
0: And that's just showed up in in its entirety on Prime. So you can catch up on that. So Ken, uh, you're now going to roll a 274-sided die... And uh, have one the, right here. Completely yes. to the surprise of all of us, you're going to come up with.
1: I roll it. It uh, comes up on uh, uh, 213. Oh no! Uh, that that uh, page in Squeaky Archaeology discusses the McMaster's Satanic Panic case, which we've already talked about.
0: Okay, time to roll that die again. And then again, I think you re-roll. can buy this this die from Game Science.
1: Yeah, I, I, Lou, Lou will happily hook you up. And oh, look at that! I got a 21 this time. Let's flip to page 21. What do we got here? Page 21. Well, look at that. It's an illustration of the tomb of Mejo, or Mejau. Uh Mejo is, I think, how they pronounce it, or Meju, on the Orkney Islands, and uh, a discussion of it in the context of treasure in barrows and lairs, because this is a barrow, or lair, and is also... Fun enough, a place where there is a dragon, and I will explain in this summary. So, Mejau is on the island of Orkney in the parish of Stenness. It is a mound. Uh, if you look at it now, it's very smooth and rounded, but uh, back when it was uh, first noticed by antiquaries, it was more of a cone shape, and it had a uh, sort of a divot in the top of it. So it looked sort of like a, like an upside down funnel a little bit. It was built as far as we can tell around 2700 BC anticipated was, it it took a hundred thousand man hours, which sounds very impressive until you run the numbers and you say, oh, that's about 70 people working for a year. So that's still, that's longer than I would work to build a mound. I grant you, but it's not, you know, it's
0: no Sears tower.
1: It's not a moonshot, right? It's not the Sears tower. It's, it's a, it's impressive. But it's, you know, and it's on Orkney, so it was very unpleasant, I'm sure, to work there, although I think we're in a a, a warming period in that era. Anywho, they builded it, and as proper Neolithic guys did, they possibly uh, tore down an existing stone circle to build it, uh, because it is aligned with other standing stones and stone circles on the island, most specifically the standing stone at Barnhouse.
0: Right. I understand there was like a big NIMBY thing about putting up the, the new barrow. Yeah, right. It's like, you no, know. No, no oh. barrow in my backyard. Right. It, it,
1: yes, that's NIMBY. Yeah. And, and so the, the barrow used to have a moat around it. They dug a ditch that was maybe full of water to indicate that it was a magical island, a la your Avalons or whatnot. Although Avalon is, I think, four- <laughs> four iterations uh, later than this, but it's still, it's a magic Island it's in the, the proto, middle proto, of a uh, magic Proto, Proto Avalon. Proto, Proto, Proto Avalon. Uh, and, and was uh, built up. And then it was reinforced according to archaeology in the ninth century, which is roughly when the Norse uh, conquer Orkney conquer, maybe landed in Orkney with more swords than the Orkney guys had is more what happened, but they uh, took it over. They may have buried a Viking chieftain in there. Uh, we don't know. In 1153, according to uh, the Orkney Chronicle or the, the Orkney Saga, some Vikings or some uh, they weren't Vikings by then they were just Norse and they were either on their way to or coming back from a crusade cut uh, runes in the walls. Then at another time, possibly or the same time, it, it, they didn't like leave dates by their carvings. Uh, Earl Harold, according to the Orkney Saga, was traveling from Stromness to Firth. And took refuge on the thirteenth day of Christmas during a snowstorm. They took refuge in the mound, and according to the Orkney saga, two of his men went insane.
0: Well, for one thing, there's I thought there's twelve days of Christmas. Yeah. Correct so, me if I'm wrong. Don't don't try to have a thirteenth day of Christmas. That's well, that's asking for trouble. That, on that's or gotta be or like the of.
1: bad luck Christmas Day. Yeah. So, yeah, the thirteenth day of Christmas, they're in the Maychau Mound, and two of them went insane. That's pretty great just by itself. So we have Crusaders and we have Earl Harold's men, according to the Orkney Saga. The Crusaders may have been the men of Earl Rǫnvald, who we know went on crusade in the Holy Land in 1151. So uh, the Orkney Saga dates the Insanity and Earl Harold's visit to 18- 1153. But the Orkney Saga, shall we say, is uh, iffy. In terms of its chronological, uh, reputability. So we have one or two batches of Vikings. They go in there. They carve a bunch of runes in it, including Ingigerth is the most beautiful of all women.
0: <laughs> so, by so by runes, we mean graffiti. Graffiti. Yes. These
1: runes <laughs> were carved this. I love this one. These runes were carved by the man most skilled in runes in the Western Ocean. So, so that, that's like Kilroy was here. That's like a rap track. Yeah. Benedict made this cross. Arn Fither Matter carved these runes with this axe owned by Gawk Trandelson. And it's like, <laughs> I have a lot. I, this, I, this is really important information you guys left behind. These runes are raising a lot of
0: questions answered by my runes. Yes. Just because you know how to make runes doesn't mean you have anything interesting to, to say with them. And then most
1: specifically, we have Crusaders broke into Mayshaal. Liff the Earl's Cook carved these runes. To the northwest is a great treasure hidden. It was long ago that a great treasure was hidden here. Happy is he that might find that great treasure. Haken alone bore treasure from this mound. And this carving is signed Simon Sirith. So Simon Sirith dictated while Liff the Earl's Cook carved, I guess, in that case. Another testimony from the wall. It is surely true what i say that treasure was taken away treasure was carried off in three nights before those
0: so th- this is an operation where someone named simon yes. is uh, providing some broad concept and other people are doing the work continue doing all the work yes and one of these v-
1: vikings and we don't know if it's the uh, this batch or the other batch or if those are the same batch carved a dragon into the wall of uh Mayshow. and uh fun ruiner archaeologists Say it's not a dragon. It's a horse. It's not a dragon. It's a lion. It's not a dragon. It's a wolf. It's not a dragon. It's a short-eared rabbit being attacked by an eagle, which is really special okay. All these,
0: all these archaeologists are working for the dragon. Clearly, it's a simple veil. Yes, they're clearly uh, team dragon. It's a dragon, and if you look
1: at it, it, it's pretty dragony. So they carved a dragon into the side of, uh, the mound. And this indicates a connection at least as late as 1153 between the notion of dragons and treasure and mounds, which is the point Jeb card made at uh, somewhat less length in spooky archaeology. And you'd say, well, that, Ken, that's, that's surely all we need. We're done now. This mound, what more could it give us? What more could it give us? Well, Robin, it can give us a tie back, a call back to a previous segment, because according to the mysterious chronicler, Joe Ben, in his voyage through the Orkneys, dated 1529 by Joe Ben, which has immediately left all scholars to say whatever year was written was not 1529. (laughs) He said that giant bones were found in Mayshow, 14 foot tall giant bones found in Mayshow, and there was a uh, gold under its head. And, uh, he doesn't say when they were taken out or what the story was on that, but he definitely says giant bones found in Meishao. And now, now that we've, oh no, I'm sorry, Robin. I also forgot it's haunted by a goblin. It's haunted by a big goblin whose name is Hogboy or Hugboy.
0: <laughs> if he's, if he's the free hugs goblin, I think we have to kill him. Well, he's, he's definitely a
1: problem goblin. Now, uh, he's going to tell you that Hogboy or Hugboy merely comes from the Norse Hwaga, meaning burial mound, and Bui, meaning goblin, uh, which is the boy bear, if we discuss our bu- our bugbear etymology way back in the day. So, Hugbug would also be a, a transliteration. All of our segments like. are
0: turning into one. It's, it's,
1: it's amazing how that works. So, Hogboy and or Hugboy is uh, described as uh, very strong, and he will crush you just like, oh, I don't know, Beowulf crushed Grendel. So that's pretty exciting. We got a uh, good old hog boy. He was
0: the, the, the Louis seer of goblins.
1: Right. And and the, uh, it might also be the hog boon, in case you're curious. But uh, the excavator of Mayshow, the guy who dug it up in 1861, said, people around here believe that the mound is full of hog boy. And as a Victorian ar- archaeologist, I will uh, dig into this mound regardless of it being full of hog boys. Possibly looking forward to it. Who can say? I don't know anything about this. There was also a uh, superstition or folk belief that if you went up onto the mound during the full moon and you were a young woman and you dumped out a basket of ashes on top of the mound and then urinated into the ashes, something would happen. One thing you would probably have a story to tell your husband later, but maybe it was also a way to divine uh, who you would marry because that's what a lot of uh, full moon and ash magic is. Urinating on a hug boy is maybe not part of it, but still, it's the Orkney Islands. They don't have as much to do as as more uh, metropolitan parts of of the British right. This is
0: the old. Is there anyone better than Old Dougal Magic?
1: Right, exactly. And and it's like, and and, and frankly, if you'd met Old Dougal, you will know why you are up on the mountain, <laughs> urinating into the ashes, and yeah. hoping for hug boy to come out. So yeah, the the mound is great. This is this is an amazing thing. And also in 1861, as James Fairer is uh, digging it up, there is a rumor. In uh, the newspapers that two mummies were found, two female mummies were found in the mound. But the newspaper's like, I don't believe it. No one's seen these mummies. I, I, I don't, I don't hold with that, with that nonsense. So mysterious possible veil out mummies to add to our veil out dragon and our hug boy and our unsanitary ash basket. So many, so many things to choose from, you, Robin. You could
0: have a whole season of adventures just in this one mound in the Orkneys. Just in this one mound in the Orkneys,
1: exactly. It's a, it's a party mound, uh, Robin. It, 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 <sighs> mound don't stop. That's what I'm saying. Mound don't stop. <laughs> it, 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 now, of course, it's a tourist uh, attraction. There's another pair of uh, standing stones at Steen I think that you can look through, and it, it turns out that if you stand. Right between them, and stand so that Mecha mound is uh, a line between them, Mecha mound appears a line between them, Robin. It's as though
0: it's like you know, <laughs> a line can be drawn between any two visible points.
1: exactly. it's and similar there's to that nothing more effect. magical than that. Yes. and there's another uh, set of standing stones called the Ring of Brogdar, which is clearly a magic item fallen out of the the d and d universe, yeah. into the Orkneys. Except it's a stone ring, not a, a cool ring that you put on and, and get uh, the power to talk to bugbears or whatever.
0: Well, until you go there and, and ask the stone ring for the the miniature version, right? That's and like then plus three against bugbears and angels, and and hog boys. Yes.
1: So it's a it, it's it's quite a it, it's quite a mound, Robin. It's 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 terrific. I I barely knew about you know the the mound at all, and now that I've discovered that there's a dragon and crusaders and graffiti. And uh several missing treasures, because if you add them up, there's the treasure that the the Vikings thought was there. there's the gold under the giant's head that Joe Ben said was there, and then there's the alleged mummies that may or may not have appeared when they when they dug it up, they found some horse bones and one human skull that was the only human remains inside the mound or remains of any kind inside the mound uh but there was it wasn't like full of Viking skeletons or or full of Neolithic people, and the theory is that if the Vikings did repurpose it. To become the barrow of a of a great uh, jarl, that they would have thrown out all the old bones because they don't want a bunch of creepy picked bones in with their cool Viking
0: skeleton. No, nobody wants to mix uh, old fashioned uh, bones, possibly uh, including goblins, with their jarl. That's uh, right. that's, that's not, not how jarling. No, works. it's not
1: sound jarling policy at no. all. So yeah, it's a it's a happening mound, Robin. There's so much, so much, and just by itself. Something in a saga where we hid in a mound and, oh, yeah, two guys went insane. Anyway, that uh, delayed us long enough. It took us an extra day to get to Firth. It's like, yeah. way to frickin' bury the lead, Orkneyal saga guy. No,
0: what, what happens in
1: May Show stays in May Show. Absolutely. Um, and believe me, there are other graffitis that I did not read. Because uh, they were indecorous. They were not suitable for a family podcast.
0: Uh, well, it, it was graffiti, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, on that uh, note, as uh, we send everybody uh, uh, booking their tickets to uh, Maysha whenever uh, the uh, pandemic allows, uh, they can go and read all these uh, dirty Norse graffiti. Uh, you have to learn runes first. Uh, that will
1: that'll give, give you something to do during the pandemic. You've got
0: time. You've got time right. to read this. Get your, um, get your Rosetta Stone for runes. Filthy Norseman epigrams. Uh, well, on that note then, uh, everybody has a plan uh, but our plan is to be back uh, next week with an episode much like this one, although possibly without so many goblins. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrine Press. Asfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James
1: Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your
0: priority question-asking
1: access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canandrobin.
0: Protect this podcast from deadly white balloons by joining such backers as... Anton Kulikov. The Redacted Files Podcast. Carrie Shutrick. Christopher Hattie and Dave Choate wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin
1: check out our latest foray into gratuitously cat themed casual wear excuse me
0: while I nap this out on Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff